Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. Now, negotiating the sale of your business is one of the most stressful and emotional things any founder can do. And it's important to be able to think clearly in the moment, which is why for our second in our three-part expert series, we wanted to bring you one of the world's leading experts on thinking clearly. Hazard Lee is a U.S. Air Force fighter pilot and international best-selling author of The Art of Clear Thinking, a Wall Street Journal bestseller that was the number two best-selling book in the U.S. and has been translated into nearly a dozen languages. As a flight commander, Hazard led pilots into combat during one of the most intense periods of the war in Afghanistan. There, he flew over 80 combat missions and became one of the only fighter pilots to fly two different types of jets into combat on the same day while supporting troops under fire. Hazard was then handpicked to fly the F-35, the most advanced and expensive weapon system in history, which was still in development at the time. During his last role on active duty, Hazard became the chief of training systems for the largest training base in the world, leading the development of new technology and teaching methods to train future fighter pilots. In his book, Hazard applies the lessons he learned in combat to everyday life. And today we ask Hazard to give us a mental toolbox for thinking clearly when the emotion of selling your business starts to take over. Now, just a quick note, this is our second in a three-part expert series where we're bringing you some of the world's leading experts on subjects exiting owners need to master. Last week, as you know, we had Chris Voss on the podcast, who is arguably the world's leading expert on negotiation and author of the New York Times bestselling book, Never Split the Difference. And next week, we're going to be joined by Robbie Kilman-Baxter, who's the author of The Membership Economy and The Forever Transaction and one of the world's leading experts on subscription models to talk about how to create recurring revenue in just about any business. Then in January, we'll be back with what you know us best for, interviewing founders about their exit. But for now, sit back and enjoy Hazard Lee on the art of clear thinking. Hazard Lee, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. It's great to be here. And you're our first fighter pilot. Although, interestingly, I I have a little kind of tangential experience uh, in this space. My grandfather was a snowbird. You call them blue angels in in America, but the, he was a fighter pilot. He he actually got shot, not shot down. He he had a, uh, an accident where uh, two wings collided, and he died in the 1950s. So our family has a little bit of unfortunate news and, and personal experience around what happens when you're not thinking clearly in the air. So I'm 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 excited to have this conversation with you. Well, yeah, it's it's great to be here. And and that's actually how I got my start is I went to an air show, saw the Thunderbirds fly. And this is back in the day when you could hop in the cockpit of a jet. And so I knew I was hooked. That's awesome. Well, it's, you know, it's funny. A lot of our listeners are like, why did you bring this fighter pilot on the show? This makes no sense. But I, I want to just take the listener to a spot, which is really a definition of why, why I wanted you to have, a, have you on the show. So our listeners are about to go through this very unique experience. They only ever do once. And, you know, it's the closest thing to the fog of war. I realize it doesn't have the same stakes as the real fog of war, but for business owners, entrepreneurs, this is the most important thing they ever do is selling their company. Very highly emotional uh, moment. 
incomplete information about the adversary, in other words, the other side of the negotiation table. You don't know what they're thinking or where they're, they're going to go next. Uh, you need to act quickly in many cases. Due diligence can last 60 days and there's a, you know, there's a time clock ticking down. And, and there's no way they can train for it. You know, I, I often characterize it as sim- similar to, you remember Sully, the guy who landed the plane on the, on the, the Hudson River. It's like Sully had do, done everything there was to do in an airplane, right? He, like he trained people on how to fly 747s or whatever. He'd never, ever had the chance to practice landing an airplane on a river and he had to grease the landing. And I think that's the the equivalent, I think, of as entrepreneurs trying to do this, selling their business. And so they need to think clearly at a very, very high stakes moment. And so I thought you are the world's expert on thinking clearly in high stakes moments. So I wanted to have you on the show. Yeah, well, yeah, I agree. I think, um, you know, as fighter pilots, our job, if you boil it down, it's to make decisions, thousands of decisions each flight, often with incomplete information and lives on the line. It's really something that we've been focused on for over 50 years. You can see over my shoulder, I have John Boyd's book and John Boyd was one of the original, you know, aircraft thinkers of how, you know, how do we make decisions in a practical environment with a lot of uncertainty? And it's because we're leveraging technology. The technology we fly is some of the best in the world. The aircraft I fly, the F-35, it can allow me to fly a hundred times faster than I can run. I can carry a hundred times more. I can see out to the horizon far greater than what my eyes can see. So I'm thousands of times more capable on the battlefield. So if we can take somebody from a, you know, a 90% decision maker to a 92% decision maker, that's a big deal. And I think that tech technological leverage applies to the business world. So we are using technology. The phone you have in your pocket can do the job of dozens of people from just a few years ago. So I think there's never been a more important time in history to be a good decision maker than now. Yeah, no, 100%. And and again, the stakes are so much higher when you're selling a company than when you're running a company because the selling is this thing that you do once and it's oftentimes makes people feel very out of out of their depth and 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 can really cause poor decision making. You know, your book starts with an interesting story about flight 447 as a sort of cautionary tale about what can go wrong when decision making is unclear. Can you tell that story? Yeah. So the big picture, Air France 447 was taken off from Brazil. They were bound for France. And the pilots encountered a, it's called the intertropical convergence zone. So it's basically where the air from the northern hemisphere meets the southern hemisphere, creates a lot of thunderstorms, embedded thunderstorms. Now, it's not the end of the world. Aircraft go through thunderstorms all the time. But this was a unique circumstance where there were three pilots. And there's a really experienced pilot, a young pilot, and then another pilot who was more uh, a corporate pilot who was in charge of more headquarters and flew every once in a while. The experienced pilot, after taking off, he ends up going uh, to the back to sleep. There's a sleep compartment for him, leaving the young young pilot in his 30s in charge of the aircraft. He encounters these thunderstorms. And what happens is simultaneously, all three pitot tubes, so pitot tubes are what measure the pressure of the air. It lets you know what your airspeed is. They become clogged all at once. Now, it's not a big deal. These aircraft, they fly, you know, nothing affected the wings. If they had done nothing, after five minutes, the pitot tube ice would have melted. They would have been able to continue on as normal. Instead, though, the co-pilot, he ends up 
pulling full back on the stick because the, the aircraft reads that it's a low airspeed. Full back on the stick. They're at 35,000 feet at basically their max altitude because they're pretty heavy. And he ends up stalling the aircraft. Stalling the aircraft, holds back on the stick the entire time. Now, this is an experienced professional pilot. He should know better that, you know, the one thing you need as a, as a pilot is airspeed. And he has no airspeed on the jet. He holds back on the stick, continues holding it. The aircraft is stalled this entire time, almost falling like a leaf out of the sky. No airflow over the wings. And he's holding back on the stick. And they're trying to figure out what's going on. The other pilot, the one that's more in a corporate role, he's trying to figure out, he's almost on the verge of being able to figure out multiple times, but his role is to be able to back up uh, the younger pilot. And so he's not able to figure out that that pilot is pulling back on the stick the whole time. They chime for the captain. The captain comes back. He's likely groggy from just waking up. He encounters this cockpit full of chaos. And he's trying to figure it out several times throughout the, the stall. He's almost able to figure it out, but it's not until they're at about 5,000 feet. So they've fallen from 35,000 to 5,000 over the course of five minutes that they're finally able to figure it out. Even then, that uh, young co-pilot still pulled back on the stick, even though he knew he shouldn't have. And they ended up impacting the ocean, killing everybody on board because he was not able to assess the problem. And so their problem was that they had just lost the pitot tubes. They wouldn't have been able to fly straight and level if they had done nothing. But he basically jumped to conclusions. And we have a saying that there's no problem so bad you can't make it worse in the uh, aviation community. And so what he did is he just jumped to doing something and it was the wrong thing and it killed everybody on board. What should he have done in that situation? Well, first of all, this uh, problem had happened a dozen times in the previous year from uh, Air France aircraft. And so all you should do is start running the checklist, do nothing, start running the checklist. They would, you know, have uh, have them shift to, to different uh, backup uh, PO tubes and things like that in order to uh, melt the uh, icing. So he, if he had done nothing, it would have been much better. Hmm. What can we learn about decision-making and apply it to the process of, of this very high emotions, you know, high stakes decision to sell. So there's a, a concept that you write about called ACE. And, and I think it's probably a good decision-making framework for entrepreneurs to think about as they're approaching potential acquisition conversations. Can you walk through what you mean by ACE and the ACE helix? Yeah. So the way we make decisions as fighter pilots is something it's simple to do, but it's also challenging. Uh, you're often your own worst enemy, especially when it comes to emotion. Uh, the co-pilot clearly knew that pulling back on the stick uh, wouldn't have been a, uh, a great thing on the ground, but uh, in the moment he wasn't able to execute it. So ACE stands for assess, choose and execute. And it's this framework for how to make decisions. Because I don't know about you, but in school, never learned how to make decisions properly. It wasn't until I got to pilot training where I really started focusing on decision making. That's one of the things they they teach us as fighter pilots. And the first thing you want to do is to assess the problem in front of you. So do nothing. In fact, we have a, uh, a saying that uh, old fighter pilots tell us to wind the clock when you have a problem. So all these sophisticated aircraft, $100 million a piece. They have old analog clocks that are hand wound in case everything fails. Do they? And so really? those pilots, yep. That's so crazy. those pilots uh, will tell you when you have a problem, an emergency, or a big decision to make, 
reach down, wind the clock. It's a completely useless task. There's no use to it other than to have you pause, take a breath, take it all in before moving on. Because just like uh, that co-pilot, he jumped to conclusions as opposed to just taking a breath and assessing the situation. And so what we do is what we call it is our cross check. So the different parts of uh, information that we're taking in to build this mental picture of everything in front of us. And I'm sure it's the same case for business leaders out there. Next is being able to come up with solutions and then choose the correct one. So coming up with solutions, that's creativity. So often people are spring loaded to just go down one path. And the reason is because it doesn't feel like you're making progress when you're just brainstorming different potential solutions. So often we only spend you know a split second doing that or as a group, because as fighter pilots, we make decisions that are in a split second, but sometimes we're planning decisions that are years into the future for planning a uh, some sort of a you know long-term mission. So you want to be able to come up with a bunch of different options. After that, choose the correct one. And the, the framework we use for that is finding the expected value. So what is the good that can happen from it? What is the probability of that happening minus the risk? What's the bad times the probability of that happening? And then lastly, it's to be able to execute. So being able to execute comes down to a couple things. Usually it's being able to stay in your optimal band of performance. So this is something the Air Force has been studying since World War II when they found that good pilots were making simple mistakes in combat and getting themselves killed. And so they found that if you're if you're not stressed out enough, then you're going to be complacent. You're going to be making mistakes out of boredom. But if you are too stressed out, then you're similarly going to be making mistakes. And we have a saying that as soon as you put on your helmet, you lose 20 IQ points because what looks easy on the ground gets far more difficult in the air when you're in the thick of things. And so finding ways to stay in that optimal band of performance. And what they found is that your cognitive ability declines and it's not at a linear rate for all of your cognitive abilities. So one of the first things to go is your ability to understand spatial relationships, which is obviously really important as a pilot. So where aircraft is in front of you, where the ground is, but also your ability to pull in different concepts from different areas and repackage it into a new and innovative solution, which is creativity. So these are things that you lose when you're in the air. That's one of the things that you lose the quickest when you're under stress. Interesting. And I mean, for, for me, the equivalent for you know, putting on your helmet would be stepping inside the boardroom of an acquirer's uh, conference table. Uh, once, you know, everything's sad, you know, you know, Mike Tyson, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Every, you know, everybody's got a, re- a great rebuttal to, to an acquirer's question or, you know, information request. But when they get into the heat of the boardroom discussion and they're on the spot having to answer a question, uh, that's when I think they start to lose IQ points. <laughs> well, I'll give you an example. So, we will take new pilots up to refuel. And so we have these, these giant aircraft, they're like airliners and we'll pull up right behind them. They're flying gas stations and it's a fully manual maneuver and new pilots, they've been taught their entire career never to hit another aircraft. And now you're intentionally doing it going 350 miles an hour. And so they'll be sitting in a seat just like this, not even maneuvering, nothing going on and their heart rates will be 170 beats a minute. Really? And so, you know, at that that level of stress, you first of all don't have the fine motor acuity to be able to maneuver, uh, you know, in a uh, 
in a reasonable way behind the aircraft. So we call it squeezing the paint out of the stick. And so we, we work with them to activate their parasympathetic nervous system to calm themselves down. But also from a non-physical standpoint, being able to make those decisions when so many people are counting on you. Sometimes we're flying missions where a thousand people have touched that mission before us. Everybody from spies on the ground to intelligence operators, to satellite operators, to these tanker crews launching from other continents, all to get you over the target on time. And if you screw up, you screw up the work of a thousand people. And if it's a high value target, that target may never resurface again. So we do a lot to be able to to stay in that moment and to be able to execute well. It's I find that fascinating. And and the fact that heartbeats get to 170 beats per minute is shocking. But I think, you know, occasionally I'll go for a run and I think about what I'm like at 170 beats uh, a minute. I'm, I, I don't have the acuity as you describe, right? Like the physical ability to kind of maneuver something very, very precise. Talk about power laws. What, what do you mean by power laws and how do they apply to decision making? Yeah. So we have really evolved as humans to think linearly. You walk 30 steps, you're now 30 steps away. But most variables and relationships in life do not scale linearly. And so there's really three main power laws that you have to worry about. One is exponential growth. I think a lot of people are familiar with this with compound interest, but oftentimes it can still catch us by surprise. So one of the examples I talked to in the book is a, a magic penny. If you find a magic penny that doubles every day after 31 days, how much do you think you would have? Yeah, I've heard this before. It, you know, like my my gut would be like a few hundred dollars, but it's some astronomical number. What, what's the actual? It answer? is. It's ten million dollars. Unbelievable. Which is which is yeah. unbelievable. You you know you know you're familiar with uh, with exponential growth, and yet it's something that just doesn't come naturally to us. And so that's one power law. Another is law of diminishing return. I think most people are familiar. You know, New Year, you get into the gym, you start doing the same workout, rapid progress, and then it starts to to taper off. And then the the third is long tail power laws. This is why, you know, a few videos on uh, Netflix really drive all the views on the platform. Uh, same thing with companies why Google and maybe a few other companies really pull in the bulk of the revenue on the internet. Uh, so really it's about understanding when a power law is in play. And one of the best ways to do that is a tool that goes back thousands of years, just graphing the data. If you can just graph the data, it almost always just pops out to you whether there's a power law at play and which one it is. For us as fighter pilots, it's uh, one that's that stands out to me is when we have to eject. If we have to eject from aircraft, we have a rocket-powered seat, then we have a bunch of stuff in the checklist to do um, to make sure that we eject safely. But the number one thing to do is obvious. It's just to slow down. And that's because the force on our body uh, scales uh, to the square of our speed. And so if you stick your hand out going down the highway, going 80 miles an hour at Mach 1.6, it's 300 times. So about a thousand miles an hour, it's 300 times that force, uh, which is much more than you would expect it to be. So it'd be ejecting into a, a brick wall of air. So Maverick ejecting at Mach 10, he, uh, he'd be just a bunch of jelly. So for us, slowing down is the, the most important thing because that wind resistance adheres to a power law. Have you ever had to eject? Knock on wood, fortunately not. I have a lot of friends that have. It's a very violent thing. It's, it's uh, about 20 to 30 Gs. Most people break some part of their body, and most pilots are two inches shorter 
for uh, at least a, a reasonable amount of time for a couple of weeks after ejecting because of that compression of their spine. Wow. Amazing. I love this idea of graphing data as a way for us to sort of compete against our own intuition about things, right? So for my listeners, when you know they get an acquisition offer or they're, they're thinking about uh, a conversation that they're having with a potential acquirer, like understanding what is being offered to you visually, like with a graph, I think that's a really interesting way to think about it, especially when you're when you're looking at earnouts and and things that are future related, like potential scenarios that might play out. Instead of like thinking about the absolute number that's been presented to you, graphing out the possible you know lines that might play out, I think is a really interesting way to to fight against, I guess, our cognitive bias or or just our kind of our, our as you mentioned, kind of the way we typically think is linearly, and so our brains aren't just aren't very good at processing these power laws. Yeah, it's it's when you feel like there's a bunch of stuff rattling in your brain around, that's that's a red flag. That should let you know that you're starting to get overloaded. One of the things that we teach new pilots is you want to be at the 90% task saturation level. Anything less, you're not max performing your jet. Taxpayers paying $100 million a piece for you to be on the battlefield. So you need to be effective on the battlefield. But anything more than 100%, tasks are just going to be haphazardly falling off. So you need, you need to be able to prioritize, smartly shed tasks to be at that 90% level. And one of the ways to do that is to, to write things down, to graph things, to get things on paper so that things are not just rattling around in your brain. And even though as fighter pilots, we have to make these decisions, you know, at split second, a lot of times they're pre-thought out decisions. And for instance, my primary focus for my career has been on seed suppression of enemy uh, air defense. It's if you saw the latest Top Gun where they're flying their surface air missile sites on the canyon walls, typically there's not a convenient canyon to fly through to avoid them. So we have to go and take these out. And so the, one of the ways to take them out is to be able to geolocate them because they're very clever. They move around all the time. So we need to be able to geolocate based on when they turn on that radar. So it's involving math, calculus, all this stuff. So we will look at that ahead of time and boil it down into rules of thumb that make it far easier for us to be able to, to think in the air. Interesting. And, and this might also dovetail nicely into something you refer to as fast forecasting. Walk us through what that means. So fast forecasting is finding that expected value, but really relying on your own critical thinking. Oftentimes people are spring-loaded to push decision-making off to somebody else. But we really, we say that everybody is a decision-maker. Everybody in the absence of others and other tools uh you know some some of them are computer models committees consultants in absence of tools you should be able to make the decision on your own and really using your intuition based on your experience flying people have a lot of these pilots have been flying 10 20 years you need to be able to calculate calculate that equation on your own what is the good that's going to happen what's the probability of that happening minus the risk, what is the bad times the probability of that happening? Now, I know it's very subjective, but the point is to be using your critical thinking. And when there's a decision to be made, one of the things that we have to prevent groupthink is having everybody individually calculate that and then present it. And then you can really see how people are thinking because now there's a quantifiable thing and people have to explain it. And then how they explain it, it's really a thought maze to understand how their thinking is. And one of three things really happens 
when you do that, you find that you are wrong, in which case that's great. That's a way to update your thinking. So next time a similar situation happens that you are more prepared, you find that it's the same as somebody else, in which case that should give you a little bit higher confidence that two people came up with a similar solution independently. Or you can be the hero for the day. You can be the person that finds the error. We have a lot of really advanced computer models uh, for how we fight and how we fly. But I've seen several times throughout my career where there's some young data entry person that fat fingers something into the data and it spits out a completely wrong answer. But a lot of times we're, you know, these models are so complex that people treat us as, uh, you know, dogmatic that, you know, it's always going to give the right answer. And it's only by you, you know, somebody coming up with their own solution saying that doesn't look right. And then we go through, you know, what people put into the computer model that they were able to figure out that it was the, uh, it was completely wrong. Interesting. A, a lot of our listeners would be in a partnership and, and doing some of this fast forecasting independent and then sharing your results with your partners, I think is an interesting exercise. If you guys get to the same probability of failure, the same probability of outcome, that's an interesting insight. If, if you're wildly over-anticipating the bad or under-anticipating the good, et cetera, that's also going to come out and, and doing it independently and then sharing your own analysis as opposed to getting a boardroom and hashing it out without the data, I think is an interesting and that was the other thing I love is I just had the opportunity to interview Chris Voss, the guy behind Never Split the Difference, the book on negotiation. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he talked about was, you know, thinking through the bad outcome in advance, expecting the bad outcome, and then role playing in your mind how you would, uh, you know, how you would process that. So, you know, in in our case, that the bad outcome might be retrading. So, acquire makes, uh, you know, an acquisition offer. 10 days later, they lower the acquisition offer. And that can be a very emotional time. And instead of just reacting in the moment, Voss talks about this idea of like rehearsing that in advance. It sounds a little bit similar to what you're describing. And I'm assuming it also is something that you will train. And that is thinking about the potential negative outcome, i.e. having to eject, and almost like role-playing what is the checklist in advance, kind of living that experience so that when you actually experience, it's not, it doesn't feel like the first time. Absolutely. For us, we call it chair flying. So being able to go through an entire sortie in your mind, it's something they teach us from day one of pilot training. And even to this day, I won't chair fly the entire sortie because I, I've already broken it down and really chairfly, for instance, the, the takeoff, all that stuff enough, but different aspects of it, I will think through every single sequence of how it should go. First, first, you should do it perfectly. You should bring in as many senses as possible. That's really the key to chair flying, to bring in the, the smell, bring in what you're going to be feeling, because essentially it's a free chance of doing it. You, you talked about a lot of the people listening will only sell their company once. This is your chance to sell your company a thousand times in your brain. And so before every flight, we will chair fly that flight. You want to chair fly it going perfectly the first time. And if you kind of screw up in your mind, keep redoing it till it's perfect because that helps give you confidence to know that you've done it successfully before. Once you've done that, now you want to have things go wrong. You want to visualize failure, all the possible areas that can go wrong and what you would do to get yourself out of that. One of the tools we use in pilot training is called stand up. And it's something to add a little bit of stress to everybody. And so the whole class will be 
sitting around the room and one person will be called up to the middle of the room and then the instructor pilots will give that person a scenario they'll be they'll say for instance you're flying at 30,000 feet you now detect a firelight on you have the aircraft and you'll have to walk everybody through what you're doing and how you're thinking and it's it's great cuz it adds a little bit of stress cuz you you're, you're going to experience a lot of stress when you're flying because if you screw up, you get you get told to sit down and the next person takes over. So, yeah, visualization, very important to be able to continue to get reps, because a lot of times when we're flying, we don't get a lot of reps. It costs about anywhere between thirty five and fifty thousand dollars an hour per aircraft to fly per hour. <laughs> and so, really? you know, there's not a lot of reps. You need to make each one count. That's incredible. And for my listeners, the equivalent of a stand-up would be meeting with your advisors, get your M&A professionals in a room and have them pepper you in advance with the likely questions that an acquirer is going to ask you and 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 force you to answer them in front of them. And that's a, a very low-risk way of getting the, the, the kind of bugs out of your potential responses. So that's great. I want to talk about flying and staying calm and, and thinking clearly under pressure. So there's a couple things we talked about already. I love the analogy of wind the clock. I found it fascinating. There's an analog clock in every, uh, uh, every airplane, but that, that idea of just slowing down in your brain, I love, ch- you know, chair flying. What else can people do, uh, to stay calm. And and again, I'll give you an analogy. So typical scenario might be, you know, you're in a boardroom meeting, an acquirer has asked you a question, you feel out of your depth, you don't know how to answer it. This is a one shot deal. If you can't answer it, you know, they're going to move on. Uh, If you answer it the wrong way, you could expose yourself to legal implications. There's a lot of stakes at play. And, and so I'd be curious to know, People have the intelligence where on, when they're on the equivalent of the ground and they're, you know, they're in their, in their, uh, at their office that they feel really smart and know what the answer is. But then when they get in the situation and their, uh, heart rate starts to go up, what, what else, what else can they do to just kind of keep their mind clear? I think it comes down to preparation. And even though that people are only going to get one shot at selling their company, they can still do a lot of preparation. As you talked about red teaming, where you're having other people ask you the questions that you're expecting. You don't rise to the level of your expectation. You fall to the level of your preparation. And we will spend a lot of time preparing and doing these missions and training before we go into combat. We'll make it even more difficult in training because we know that you're going to lose IQ points when you actually go into combat because it, it gets a lot more challenging. You get onto that other side of the stress curve. This is one thing that I've been dealing with and and teaching a lot because I've been an instructor pilot teaching some of the best pilots in the world. I've taught hundreds of them and these are incredible pilots, but they're in their mid twenties. And so they come to us and they've never really made a lot of mistakes. And we push them to the level where everybody makes mistakes. Everybody starts off as a terrible fighter pilot and you build from there. And so you'll be flying with one of these students and they will make a mistake and as they inevitably will, and then they'll make another mistake and another mistake and it'll snowball out of control. And it's because they're not staying in the present moment. When they make a mistake, they're now focusing on that mistake. They're focusing on how they're not used to making mistakes, how they might wash out of the program, because up to this point, it's very selective. You're continually washing out people. 
And so they'll let a small mistake spiral out of control. And within two or three mistakes, because of the speeds we're flying, it will turn into a unsafe condition. And now they really will have to worry about either what we call hooking the flight, failing the flight, and potentially other ramifications after that. And so I think the the number one thing to do is to, if you've made a mistake, you don't want to be dwelling on it. Don't worry about that. You're now in a new reality. You have to get yourself out of that position. And I think the best tool for that is the debrief. And so the debrief is really, it's sacred for us as fighter pilots. If you ask any fighter pilot where the most learning happens, it's in the debrief. And the reason why it's important for being able to stay in the present moment is you shouldn't be grading yourself and judging yourself in the moment. You should have a set set aside time to do in that. And so when we fly, we'll fly for about an hour, hour and a half in training in combat, sometimes far longer after the flight, we'll spend sometimes two, six, 10 hours debriefing that sortie, going through every single thing that went wrong and ways that we can correct it. Sometimes we'll listen to the same radio call 10 times just to find ways to to tweak it just a little bit to make it better the next time. But having that debrief set aside, you know that there's a time to think about your mistakes. It's it's right there on the schedule. You're going to sit down. You're going to think about the mistake. It doesn't have to be eight hours. It can be 30 minutes. Really what you're trying to do at the end of the day for these students, I'm trying to find three things that they did well to keep their confidence up and three things that they can work on for next time. That's it. If you do that over the course of 100 flights, just get 1% better each one, you're going to make significant improvements. But I think the the number one thing for helping people to stay in that present moment is to not judge yourself in that moment. Have a set aside time later on when you can really dig into it. I love this. And for my listeners, what you need to do is schedule a second meeting with your advisor after every conversation you have with an acquirer. So your advisor is going to trot you out to an acquirer. You're going to sit down with the acquirer. They're going to ask you a bunch of questions. And instead of leaving and then kind of high-fiving and going off in your separate directions, have an hour or two scheduled to debrief with your advisor because they're in confidence going to be able to tell you what you said right, what you said wrong. There's a story in my first book, Built to Sell, where the the M&A professional kind of has a debrief with the entrepreneur and explains why he answered a question poorly. The question was, why do you want to sell your company? And he blurted out the truthful answer. And then she went on to explain what a terrible way that was to answer it. But to your point, if the entrepreneur knows that there's a spot on the calendar after to kind of wallow in the the things they said wrong, they don't have to think about it in the moment. The other thing that occurs to me, Hazard, as you're talking, is that entrepreneurs don't have a boss. You know, unlike a fighter pilot who has a whole chain of command and there's a boss and a boss and a boss over top of him or her many, many layers on, entrepreneurs don't have that natural debriefing individual, right? They're kind of like the the lone wolf. And so leaning on their advisor in, you know, the person they've hired to help them sell their company in that way to almost be a boss without necessarily calling them that, I think is a really interesting concept. One one thing I would say though is that structurally, yes, everybody in the military has a supervisor. But when we're flying, typically we're flying with uh, one other aircraft as a two ship or three other aircraft as a four ship. And if you are the flight lead, you are fully in charge of that flight. So when you come back, you might be in your mid-20s, late 20s. And if your wingman is the wing commander in charge of the entire base, you are in charge of that debrief. You completely own it. And there's a lot of best practices, I guess, for 
making sure that it goes well. And I think debriefs need to be harsh. They need to be uh, brutal. I think people would be surprised at you know how brutal some of our debriefs are, but there's a way to do it. It's non-attributional. So it's a nameless, rankless debrief. We're focused because everybody wants to win. Everybody has an ego. Everybody wants to do well. But after the fact, the way you win is by figuring out what went wrong and how to get better the next time. And so you really want to dig in and find every minute mistake and how you can do it better. We can be friends, you know, after the fact, but in this case, it's a sterile environment where we're just trying to find ways to get better. And it's non-attributional. So it doesn't matter who's making the mistake. We're focused on, on the mistake and how to fix it the next time. And it doesn't matter if, you know, we all have different roles. So to your point with people that don't have bosses, that's kind of like the flight lead, the flight lead, when they walk into the room, they are in charge of the entire debrief and they could easily, you know, shirk their responsibility. They can easily use their status or their experience as a shield to prevent them. But you want to be the person, everybody wants to be the person raising their hand saying that when there's a failed objective, I was the person that screwed that up. This is how I can fix it. And if everybody does that for each failed objective, then you really have a high performing team because everybody's going to get better. Well said. Non-attributional meaning, I, I find that hard to imagine in the context of breaking down a, a sortie. If, if you're flying the plane and you turn left instead of right, I mean, whatever, I'm using a very simplistic example. Like, how do you basically said you, like, how do you do that in a non-attributional way? Like, how do you actually say you turn the wrong direction if it's, I mean, there's only one person flying the plane. Well, we don't make it about the individual. We make it about the mission. So it, it it depends. So if we were flying an upgrade sortie, so we're taking a a student who's trying to become a wingman or a wingman to a flight lead, we're grading them on 60 to 100 different parameters. So that's different than if we are going out on a mission, say, we have these really large exercises called Red Flag, 100 aircraft flying all at once. And so the goal of the day isn't to, to focus on one wingman and how they can get better. The goal is to figure out how to achieve our objective and how to win overall. And so once we find all these little mistakes after the fact, we will go through the summary of those mistakes. We're really digging down to what the root cause is, what are the contributing factors, and then developing lessons learned that we can brief to everybody else. So we don't say that, you know, Joe made this mistake. How much does he suck? We're saying that Oh, in the future, when you're shooting a Fox 3 uh, AIM-120 missile, this is the way to do it as opposed to focusing on one person. You know, my some of my perception of fighter pilots is sort of Top Gun related, right? Like I think of the, the first, you know, I can, I'm old enough to remember the first one. Now, of course, the second one. And, and all the characters in that are, are kind of like your high school quarterback type of guys, most guys and some women, I think, in the new one as well. Um, you don't think of them as being physics majors. They're sort of more like your frat guys. When I talk to you and listen to the level of mathematics and precision and even your dialect, the way you speak, let alone the kind of math you're doing in real time, it strikes me that my perception of what it takes to be a fire pilot is totally wrong. Like how, how, how did you do in high school? How, what, what kind of marks did you get? Is it, I, I'm curious to know, this probably is a very hard thing to become a, a high level fighter pilot. Yeah. I mean, you have to be these, these, these aircraft, they're fully driven by technology now. So you can't just get in there and be a good 
stick and rudder guy. You have to know how all these different systems work, how your synthetic aperture radar works, how to geolocate these surface air missile threats. So there's tons of studying that goes on to become a fighter pilot. First day of pilot training, they give you a four foot stack of papers. So it's almost like, I don't know, being a doctor or something. And they want you to memorize the whole thing. In terms of school, I did okay, but I wasn't great. I went to the Air Force Academy, but I didn't get in on my first try. I had to go to a year of prep school. Um, my father, he was a, he, he was a physicist. So that's kind of how I grew up thinking, but you, you really these days need fighter pilots that are able to understand these complex problems because it's not all just dogfighting. Dogfighting is about 10% of what we do. A lot of it has to do with planning these large complex missions. It's multi-domain. You're talking about if you're going in, taking out these surface air missile sites, it's an enemy integrated air defense where they have thousands of assets all tied together. And it's our job to usually as a mission commander to pick our way through that. And it's multi-domain. So you have ships at sea, you have uh, assets in space, increasingly cyber assets going in and creating a cyber attack to be able to help you out. Because if you can do that and save one of your bombs for something else, then, then uh, you know, it could be huge. So you do have to be cerebral, but at the same time, you also have to have that killer instinct. You have to be able to pull nine Gs. It's very physical on us. Right now I'm at one G. If you've been in a roller coaster that's pushed your head down, doing a loop, that's about three Gs. Formula One car is about five Gs breaking, nine Gs, soul crushing amount of force, over 2000 pounds on your body. So we do a lot on the physical side to be able to withstand that. Cause if you lose enough blood, you'll pass out. And at the speeds we're flying, you're probably gonna impact the ground before you wake up. And we've lost about one pilot a year to this G-induced loss of consciousness over the really? last 30 years. So you kind of have to be a jack of all trades. You have to be able to do math quick in the air. You have to be able to ingest large amounts of information. You have to be uh, physically fit. When we dogfight, you lose about five pounds of water weight on a hot day. Really? Um, but at the end of the day, clear thinking, that's the number one thing. I'm glad you you brought us back to clear thinking and, and the book. You parlayed the book uh, into a business. And again, our listeners are all entrepreneurs. And so I think they'd be curious to know how, uh, you know, the business that you've created underneath the book and, and how the book is feeding the business. Do you mind sharing a little bit about your business as well? Well, so it all started with the book. When I came back from Afghanistan, there were a lot of, a lot of uh, crazy stories that happened over there. And I started just writing things down for myself. So I wouldn't forget. And I thought these are pretty interesting stories. Maybe it would be interesting to to write a book and realize that you have to have an audience to write a book these days if you want to get it published. And so I was like, well, how do I start an audience? So I started a podcast and then to promote the podcast, started social media and then just started building up from there. And then I was able to get a book deal. And then I spent two years straight writing the book. I wrote every word in the book over 500 days in a row at this office. I'd show up at eight in the morning. I would, uh, do a lot to prevent any distractions. We, we fly with sterile cockpits. We don't have any devices and stuff. So I tried to bring that here. I wouldn't bring my phone. I would disconnect the internet and I would write for four hours, eight to noon every <laughs> single day. Uh, didn't miss a single day for over 500 days and was able to write that book. Uh, oh, I had nine revisions on it. So it was all to be able to write this book and it came out in May and it it's done really well. It's was Wall Street Journal bestseller, was yeah. the number two best-selling business book in the country. Now it's being translated. So I was just working with the German translators, answering a few questions. 
So it's really, really exciting to see. And it's great to be able to get some information out because that's one of the reasons why I started the, my podcast is because information so siloed. We have a lot of great best practices. Surgeons have great practices, best practices, astronauts do, but it doesn't really make it out that much. Not because it's classified for us, but because we're just so busy with the mission. And so I, in 2020, joined the reserve. So I fly about once a month just to stay current. And then the rest of the time I'm focused on writing and, uh, and doing things like this. The book is called The Art of Clear Thinking. Uh, you can get it anywhere books are sold. Hazard, if people want to reach out and say hi on social media, YouTube, I guess, is a good place. Where else can they go? All the social media platforms, any any of them, Hazard Lee with the S, so H-A-S-A-R-D. And as we were talking before, that's not my first name. My parents didn't hate me or think I was going to become a fighter pilot. That's my call sign. But the tradition is that we can only tell how we got our call sign over a fine glass of whiskey. So if you see me out there, you want to drink some whiskey, then uh, then I'm happy to tell you the story. Or you know, feel free to reach out on social media, Instagram, all that stuff. Hazard Lee, and we'll put all of his social connections in the show notes at builtself.com. Hazard, thanks for this. Thank you, John. And there you have it for today's episode between John and Hazard. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then be sure to hit that subscribe button. And if you want to help support this show, I would encourage you to share this episode out with a friend or colleague. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, be sure to visit Hazard's episode page, which you'll be able to find over at builttosell.com. Also, as a reminder, if you know of someone who'd be a great fit to be a guest right here on the podcast, you can nominate them by heading over to builttocell.com slash nominate. There you'll have the chance to nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on the show with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week.